Let's stand to pray. O Heavenly King, the Comfort of the Spirit of Truth, parts ever present, fulfills all things. Grant your blessings and give our life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Does anyone have any questions? There's also some seats up here. I might end up tap dancing on your toes, but I have a pen or a pencil over there. So. Nobody has any questions? Yes. So there's a section in the first uh, section of the reading that's talking about um, the church being in and out of the church kind of more broadly. And I don't know if this is a topic we want to get into today or if it's a later topic. In and out of the in so, and out of the church. I didn't, yeah, sorry. I didn't read the section. Oh, oh okay. So, can you refresh me? <laughs> yeah. About um, what it says? Yeah, there, it's just talking about like being like, being in the church versus being outside of the church. Uh, so, what is your question? My question is, how do we how do we think about this? My whole world is basically Protestant, and I have I find myself in many conversations that are then getting into like. So what? What's the Orthodox take on like me? How how, how do they like understand me? Or these these kinds of kind of ecle- broader ecclesial uh, conversations? So yes, okay. So the Orthodox Church does not have the same uh, ecclesiology of the Protestant understanding of an invisible church. That basically anybody who calls on Jesus uh, is a part of the church. But let me. The best way that I know how Orthodox will talk about this, and this is a running debate in the Orthodox Church. Partly this is a running debate because when you've grown up Orthodox for a thousand years in Serbia, your experience with Protestants is like Americans coming over and bombing you or something, okay? I'm kind of being like direct, like right the 90s, the Balkan Wars. So part of the reality, or like Mormon missionaries or Jehovah's Witnesses coming over, uh, so their reality, uh, they'll be much stronger in reaction to that because they'll come over and say like, Oh, have you heard of Jesus? And we're like, we literally heard about Jesus a thousand years ago. Like we, we yes, we are Christian. Uh, so the Orthodox church, the best thing that I know of is one that says, I know where the church is. I don't know where it is not in the sense that, uh, when you have the responsibility in your eyes encounter what the truth is then there is a culpability responsibility that you have in regards to that uh those who've never heard of the orthodox church or don't understand what it is uh we are not the ones who stand in judgment they're going to stand before god and so we pray for them it's kind of like the public and the pharisee like i'm not going around going like you're a heretic you're a heretic like you you know your christology is off uh one most folks did not choose heresy as if they the idea of heresy means that you have made a choice it literally means to like cut off and make a choice and go in a different direction so most folks never made a choice they just grew up with that or they made a choice without realizing they were making a choice so we're all going to stand before God and that will be between God and that person once you come to an understanding, this would be like if you come into the church, you're received into the church, and then you choose to apostatize, that is a different thing. That is a weight and responsibility that you have on you that then you walk away from it. So uh, there is an understanding of, like, for example, uh, you'll, you won't hear me in the, in, the, in the entrance when I'm going through the departed. Uh, I, I don't put... Uh, when commemorating the dead, I don't put non-Orthodox on the, the Patton or the Discos commemorating because they're, they're, they have not on this side of things associated themselves uh, with the church, so I'm not going to force them into the church after they have reposed. That doesn't mean we don't pray for them, uh, even those who have passed on. Uh, because to me, it's really simple. Like, okay, 17th century England, did they have a choice to become Orthodox? No, they did not. Do, should I pray for them? Yes. Uh, is that between them and God? Yes. 
am I the judge? No, thank God. I don't want that responsibility, right? But when I know or when I'm encountering somebody, I'm going to testify and witness to the truth that I understand and say that the Orthodox Church is the fullness of the church. This is the church. And those, those without are don't have the fullness of it. They've got shadows of it. They experience. I'm very thankful for my background that I grew up Church of Christ, that I was exposed to scripture. Uh, I feel like I got a little bit of scripture, not the full picture. And so coming into orthodoxy, I feel like I was given everything that I need and what is necessary for my salvation. The basic reason I became orthodox is just like I can actually be sanctified in this context and the other context I would just run up against thing after thing after thing that just did not make sense to me. Theologically, ecclesiologically, ecclesiologically just means like what the church is. Does that answer? Yeah. Any other questions? Anybody else want to ask a hard question about <laughs> heaven, hell, judgment, etc.? Nobody? Okay. Okay. Um, during the liturgy today, I heard you say something about the um, ever, ever virgin day of Tethys, if I'm pronouncing correctly. Yep. What is the Orthodox view on Mary's, uh, let's just say, Children post post Jesus. She did not have children post Jesus. Okay. That is why she's the ever virgin. Okay. Any other questions? I think somebody else had a hand up. Yes, Linda. This is um, a hard question, but it's really rather easy. Um, it's just hard for me to say because I don't want to put doubt into other people's minds. And we were told to read and not judge and just read and keep going. If you don't understand it, just keep going. But um, when we pray and we're um, reading about the saint of the day, yep. or the martyrs, sometimes the story is... Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, okay, just keep going. But so, go ahead. What do I do with those thoughts besides pushing them aside? Uh, try to discern... So, it's in, do you read scripture like that? I don't read scripture like that. Why? Because it's scripture? When they found John, the head, his head, head for the second and time. And because he felt his grace, he decided that it was John's head. So, this is where the Orthodox Church is not a modern movement. The Orthodox Church's roots go way back before enlightenment and skepticism and cynicism of the kind that we are like cooked in from the womb up. Uh, that does not mean that you need to accept. So I would also accept every single thing that you read just because it is between the covers and an Orthodox book. But to slow you down in that because it's very easy to immediately go to doubt or cynicism about something, but to actually try to discern what is being said in and what is the real meaning in the text, as opposed to just immediately going to the question of, did this actually happen? Is this, how do I, what do I do with this? So uh, when you're coming across fantastic things, there's way more fantastic things than the, finding of, the second finding of John the Baptist's head. Uh, to, for me, I, I read it, and I kind of just bracket the idea of whether or not it actually happened or not. And like, what's the point that it's trying to get across? Uh, is this that there is a devotion to John the Baptist? Is there like, and those are the things that I focus on. Uh, whether or not it happened or not, I would also say there's like a hierarchy of things that are absolutely true. And then things that are things, it's kind of like what you hear out of the sermon is going is going to be like, third tier versus like what the fathers say and versus what, what scripture says is a primary thing versus what you randomly hear at coffee hour by a parishioner who had some experience in a prayer last night uh, or in prayer or in like a dream last night right that is not on the same level as scripture that's not on the same level of the authority of the church but it's something that like if it encourages you 
If it's something that you find, so listen, brings repentance in you, then thank God. You don't have to go into like, was that really the Archangel Michael that appeared to this person? Probably the, that situation, like, you should probably go talk to Father Daniel about that. Right? Does that make sense? I would say, like, there's a hierarchy of things of, like, this is, like, absolutely, like, the core of the faith, the creed, the liturgy, the gospels, right? Like, then the explanation and exposition of it by the fathers. And then, like, I try very hard not to preach heresy or crazy stuff from the pulpit, right? Like, and if somebody had a question about something that I said, then they can ask me, and then we go from there. But there's other things because this is also this is kind of like how in your family you've probably heard stories from your great uncle or something that goes back two or three generations like there's some story that floats around my family about some one of my answers like jesse james stole a, a horse from him i don't know if that's true it's a cool story so i'll talk about it <laughs> there's nothing i can get out of that but like okay cool uh, so there are certain things that float around in orthodoxy because we're talking about 2,000 years of history uh, that are there and they can be honored uh, but it doesn't require us to have like a definitive answer for every single thing that we come across does that make sense? there's nuance there's nuance can I make an observation on this? What, what I would recommend also in this is just to is, is to come at come at it with an open mind because um, after you've been with the church for like a decade a couple of decades um, through the life of the church you'll you'll realize that there just really aren't any coincidences um, because I I myself have experienced things that that and I, and I don't go around talking about them but I, I write them down in my journal so I'll remember them in the future things that are not coincidences, places where God will kind of grab you by the sleeve and say, here, take a look at this. Um, and, 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 they, and they will deepen our faith, but we don't base our faith upon just having those experiences. So, so come out with, with an open mind. You pray, you fast, you read the lives of the saints, and you ask God to, to, to show you what you need to see. That's very helpful because... I forget sometimes of things that I have experienced, partly because of my own carnality or just not being holy, <laughs> of things that I have been experienced of seeing um, mer streaming icons in the middle of a service, uh, an angel's icon on the iconostasis of the doors or angel doors. We don't have angel doors here, but uh, we have deacon door, deacon icons instead of angels. And the globe that the angel had, it was just like, you could, I could see it from like 50 feet out, just like myrrh coming out of it. And I asked somebody when I was in the service, like, myrrh streaming, I was like, oh, that happens from time to time. Just kind of like, yeah, that is something that happens. That icon streams myrrh. And that was, to me, it was just like, oh, okay. And I looked back and I'm just like, what? Nobody there was like, losing their mind or like let's make this a huge thing you'll never read about this there's no youtube video of this it was just that parish that they there was they felt god's presence or the presence of i forget which angel it would have been archangel it would have been that they were making themselves known and that there was a merge streaming icon so i mean i have other experiences of i would say like coincidences but they're not really coincidences where i was baptized maximus for maximus the confessor and at major points in my life, uh, he, through his relics, was like there. By appeared, I don't mean like I saw him, but right before um, I made the decision to go to seminary, I had the opportunity his relics uh, to venerate his relics because of a priest that I stayed with. Right before um, asking uh, my wife to marry me in a monastery in England. His relic, like all these major points, he made himself known and like blessed what was happening. So I could mark those days as like the second time I venerated the relics of St. Maximus the Confessor and they had this resonance for me, but it didn't make it into the calendar of the church. <laughs> Thankfully, good. <laughs> Any other questions? I have a question necessarily about the names, but like you're the one baptism, right? Yes. Right, so I'll, I'll address that between you and I. Okay. 
I'm going to shut the door for questions because otherwise that's all we'll do. Uh, and we'll see if we have some time at the end. Um, I've been going back and forth about, do you want me to finish on the anaphora or do you want me to go ahead and jump into orthodox spirituality? Anaphora? All right, let's finish the uh, anaphora. What we had, um, I don't know if, I, I assume nobody has it anymore. After the recalling of all the things that have been done for us and for our salvation, uh, the deacon takes, or if it was me, if it was just me serving, we take the discos and the chalice and it is elevated and the priest says, thine own of thine own, we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all. Uh, the anaphora prayer, uh, was everybody here last week? I know there's some people who weren't here. The anaphora means the offering up. Uh, where this is, the, this is the prayers that are around the consecration of the bread and wine. So we, we've gone through the first part of it of giving thanks. That is a prayer that is directed to God the Father. The whole prayer, the anaphora prayer is all to the Father. Uh, that uh, we are recalling what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, and then we are recalling... Um, uh, well, we're about to ask for the Holy Spirit to descend. When the priest is offering up uh, the gifts, the bread and the wine, uh, what do you think is being said when he says, Thine own of thine own, we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all? What is being offered? Christ. Christ. Who is Christ being offered to? The Father. The Father, right? So we're saying thine own of thine own, right? Like your son, we offer unto thee on behalf of all, right? For everyone. This is also as we, as we give the gift of the giver, <laughs> uh, we are offering all that we can because everything in our existence ha is, is sheer gift, period. So we offer the perfect one back uh, because he's given himself over to us. And there's something just incredible about God having humbled himself and becoming uh, a person in the first place, but then that he's also going to humble himself and make himself accessible to us uh, through the bread and the wine. Uh, does anyone have any questions about this offering? Yep. Is it similar to how like the uh, Catholics do it, or is there like what a aspect of similarity? Well, are you asking about transubstantiation, or are you talking about the the the, the liturgical function or action? The liturgical function. Uh, I don't believe it's the same. There is a a, a offering up of the chalice uh, with the host, but it is not done in the same way that we do things. The uh, there there is. A different order, like like we we have the anaphora prayers that take eat this is my body, and then calling the Holy Spirit down after that. In the Catholic Mass, it's reversed. We ask that your Spirit come down upon these gifts as the dew falls, and then and then after that is a take eat this is my body. So. I'm not. I was never on a Catholic, so I don't know all the. It's the Epiclesis is 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 that part, and it's in its different place. Epiclesis is the calling down of the Holy Spirit. Oh. Again, we offer unto thee this reasonable and blessed worship. The priest continues, and ask thee and pray thee and supplicate thee, send down the Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts here offered. One of the things that is also being asked in the Holy Spirit coming down, as you can hear, that the Holy Spirit is being asked to come upon us and upon the gifts. So, the reality is that we are offering up the perfect sacrifice of Christ to the Father, but the Holy Spirit is also to call, come upon us. Though Thomas Hopkins will talk about, this isn't in the book, but in, in talks, um, that our participation in the, the death of Christ, where we are to take up our own crosses, where we are to die to ourselves, this is the way in which the Holy Spirit always functions. When, what we see in the Eucharist and offering up of the Son to the Father is the relationship of the triune God. 
where the Father sends the Son into the world, uh, and he operates through the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is always resting upon the Son, uh, such even in his sacrifice and his life-giving death, uh, his resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, the way that Paul talks about it, everything that Christ does is at the direction of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is our own life, right? We, in being in Christ, we offer up ourselves to the Father. We ask for the Holy Spirit to dwell upon us and in us so that we also offer up ourselves for the life of the world as we can, an imitation of Christ, right? He is the perfect gift. He is the perfect offering. He is the perfect human. But this is also exactly the path for us in salvation, so when we're calling down the Holy Spirit, we are calling down the Holy Spirit to change the gifts. We're also calling down the Holy Spirit to fall upon us and to change us in this act of giving thanks and dying with Christ as well. This is something that usually gets lost. There's a lot of focus upon like what is happening to, like, right? And all the debates of the Middle Ages are all this, like, when does it happen? When does it become the body and blood of Christ? And like all of these debates and ink spilled endlessly. But... The, the perspective is uh, it is taken up and it is changed into the body and blood of Christ uh, but this is also this, is, this isn't some kind of magic thing that is done outside of you that then you receive but it's also something that needs to happen to you in order to actually receive it does that make sense? this isn't a magic thing in the sense of like uh, you get to have your Jesus and everything's going to be fine because you receive Holy Communion no, you have to actually shed your blood and die for the sake of the Father to crucify your passions in order to truly receive him in communion. Now, do we do that perfectly? No. <laughs> Is that part of the whole point? Yes. And after this, we have the consecration where we call down the Holy Spirit. Uh, we repeat the the... The words of our Lord on the night in which he was given up for the life of the world, you know, this is my body, this is this is the cup, uh, that we then ask and bless, and the priest uh, makes the sign of the cross over the bread and the wine, and then ask, uh, making this change by the Holy Spirit, and that is then uh, when we'll take a prostration in the altar uh, that the Holy Spirit has descended and consecrated the gifts. So that is now the body and blood of Christ. As soon as we have done that, we then ask, and this is helpful to just hear the words that are, are prayed so that we can understand what is occurring. The priest then says that they may be to those who partake that the gifts that are on the altar for the purification of soul, for the remission of sins, for the communion of thy Holy Spirit, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, for boldness towards thee, and not for judgment or condemnation. So there's a lot of things that we think is happening in communion uh, that is reflected in this prayer. There is the purification of soul and the remission of sins. There's also the communion of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're partaking of the body and blood of Christ, but this also means that we're receiving the Holy Spirit through this action. And then as we've talked about from uh, the last class, talking about what the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of heaven. This, in the Orthodox understanding, is the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, right? That Christ is going to be within you. That you're going to have full communion with God, having eaten him, right? Partaking of him. Uh, so where is this line about for boldness towards thee? Where does that come from? Does anyone have any idea of what that idea that we receive communion, we have boldness towards God? Isn't that the part where Paul says, now we can approach the throne boldly? Yes. It also comes up liturgically in just a little bit after this. There's a place where we talk about having boldness. Does anyone recall? Right before the Our Father, right? So how do we have access to the throne of the Father? Because of Jesus Christ, right? So we have a boldness because we are not aliens. We're, we are not... I don't mean aliens as like UFOs, right? Like I mean aliens like outside of the commonwealth, right? We are not outside of the kingdom. We have now been received into the very household of God. This is how Paul talks about, and we're going to talk about this with some Trinitarian theology in a little bit more depth uh, when we hit uh, the creed. Uh, but we have boldness now because 
Christ has basically, we've become adopted children in the household of God because of Christ, right? This is how Paul talks about throughout his epistles. Uh, and then not for judgment or condemnation. What, what is being talked about there? Why would we talk about communion and start talking about judgment and condemnation? If you're not in the right place, that could be a bad thing. Right, so that they may be, that these gifts might be not for judgment or condemnation. Is this, is this somewhere in scripture? Is this just some kind of made-up thing that Orthodox came up with? So Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world. Right, there's another place outside of our Lord. Paul talks about... Paul, what, so what does Paul talk about? This is First Corinthians 11, if I'm remembering the correct chapter. Does anyone remember any of that conversation at all? People died. What? People died. People died. Okay, there you go. People died. For, for partaking... So he talks about some have, have gotten sick and some have died because they have not rightly discerned the body, right? This is 1 Corinthians 11. So this is pretty fantastic, right? Like Paul is talking about people who are getting sick and dying because they partake of communion in, uh, in a state that of not being right with God, to use that kind of terminology, right? Uh, the Orthodox Church, that's why I at least make some kind of announcement before every single communion, like... You need to be prepared with a recent confession. This is not just something that you waltz up. It's not a drive-through, right? Uh, for Paul, there's different aspects here. There is a discernment of the body in regards to uh, that there's not any divisions amongst us as the body of Christ, right? So to Jesus, when he says, like, if you have something against your brother, don't go to the altar, right? Like, you need to go rectify things with your brother. This is the same thing. If there's a, a serious issue that is causing a division, you shouldn't go receive Holy Communion. You need to go and rectify and reconcile things uh, with your brother, sister, whoever it is that you need to reconcile with. Uh, that there is in receiving communion also a discernment of uh, what it is that you are receiving, that you are receiving the body and blood of Christ. So this is all reflected in the prayer that we do uh, publicly, where the faithful, I believe, O Lord, and I confess that Thou art truly the Christ, the Son of the Living God, who comes to the world to save sinners, of whom I am first. By the way, I would suggest you might get it through osmosis, but you might want to like get a copy of that, or if you need a copy of it, I can provide you a copy of it because it would just be a good thing to memorize. Also, I would suggest like memorize the creed. Right? Uh, these are all things that in initiation into the church and practice of the church. This is something that you need to know. So there is in uh, discerning what you are receiving, that you receive it in a state uh, that you don't have like some, some major sins going on in your life, right? You're in a state of adultery, then you need to get your butt to confession, okay? Uh, don't go to communion. Uh, these are things, of course, like, I don't know unless you tell me. <laughs> so uh, you are uh, taking the risk and receiving communion or not. There's also, if it's not fantastic, by fa like that somebody's going to get sick and die, uh, there's just the reality of like you can kill yourself slowly over time by just hardening your heart and not just receiving communion without any... You're just not there, right? You're just going through the actions. You might be doing the right thing, this is the Pharisee, but your heart is nowhere close to God. So, what happens uh, after this is then we uh, uh, remember all those who have gone on before, right? This is where I go through the list. The prophets, forefathers, ancestors, all those have been made perfect in faith, right? And then especially we remember the mother of God, and then silently the priest then goes through a whole like list of the living. Sorry, first is the dead. So the the Eucharist is always offered. There's somebody standing there or sitting there. Do you need something? Can I get on the computer for just a second? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Sorry. <sighs> So I tried doing it without interrupting you. That's fine. <laughs> Life happens. So, um, the, when I was talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and that we participate in heavenly worship, well, who is in the heavenly places? 
all those who've gone on before us, right? So we are remembering all of those uh, within the body uh, who've gone on before us, prophets, uh, apostles, preachers, evangelists, uh, martyrs, confessors, ascetics, and all those made perfect in faith, right? Uh, that we especially at the forefront of this choir of saints is the mother of God. Uh, and then we go through and remember all those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. Uh, so this is uh, the commemoration of whoever uh, the saint is for the day. Uh, those who have died. So I have a, a particular list that I go through in my head of those. that are, I remember every single liturgy. Uh, and then we then remember the living. Because the Eucharist is the meeting of all of those who've gone on before. And one way of talking about it is the church triumphant. And then we have the church militant or the church that's still in warfare, right? Uh, and that's us. So we first start and remember those who have gone on before us. And then we pray for those on this side of things. Okay, again, like we're doing the book of Revelation, just live action, not just reading it and talking about it. Any questions about that? This is a lot different than your typical uh, Baptist memorial uh, Lord's Supper thing, right? Like you, this is not just like we remember when Jesus died for us, and we're going to eat this. Well, I was growing up; I didn't grow up Baptist, but Church of Christ, like we had matzah. Do you know what I'm talking about? The unleavened stuff. Uh, my wife bought some a few weeks ago. I don't know why. Some health thing. I don't know. I'm always finding random health food stuff in the the cabinet and wondering how I can even eat it. Uh, and so I ate some of the matzah and I like went back to like being nine years old in a pew in Arkansas, uh, you know, being passed around with uh, the little the little uh, plastic cups with the great Welch's in it, uh, and then the matzah. So. We all, like, we're all very clear this is, this is not the body and blood of Christ, right? Growing up in the church, the church of Christ, that was a whole different thing, right? So it's just like we kind of remember that Jesus died for us and we're kind of sorry about our sins. Uh, there is a whole other layer of participation, cosmic eschatological reality that is happening when we are approaching uh, communion in the Orthodox Church. Like, we are sitting at the table with God, with all those who have gone on before us, we are participating in the very uh, life of Christ and his blood that has been spilt for us uh, so that we, uh, over time, can learn how to grow up and be truly faithful to the Father just as Christ was, right? We need this, uh, I'll say, ritualized action in order to transform us. Any questions about... Yes. Um, so when, because I have a Protestant background, where we call them ordinances too. Yes. So I'm not an expert on like the Protestant <clears throat> Reformation, but I've read some of like Zwingli and Luther and Calvin, and they seem to actually hold that the sacraments were, were sacraments, and they weren't just like, oh, Welch's grape juice and a Ritz cracker will suffice. When did that change? That all of a sudden people are saying they're just ordinances. Zwingli. So he actually... Zwingli is where the memorialist idea comes from. Oh. And I'm not an expert in Reformation stuff, but Luther and Calvin had specific different ideas about communion. And Zwingli had a completely different idea beyond them. That's why they, they tolerated each other, but Calvinists and Lutherans from then on have... They've always fought with each other. Partly, specifically about communion, because oh. it shows what their Christology is like. Now we're going to get into the, wood, the the weeds. What is like two weeks, one week, month? Recent what? Confession? Yeah. What is defined as? It depends person to person what that is. The Holy Synod uh, says monthly if you are receiving every single week. Uh, I here at St. Anne's, because that was not the practice when I became the rector, have been saying quarterly to get people more used to, instead of just an annual confession, that they need to be coming at least four times a year. So that be, that kind of coincides roughly with the four fasts. Roughly. Some people come every other week. Some people come monthly. Uh, I, I can't keep track of every single thing, and I'm like... So all I can do is encourage, and I can't force people. 
if someone's in a, a state of grievous sin and I know about it because they've confessed it, then I will have them step away from communion for a time and work with them to figure out a way to be able to, re- to be restored and come back to communion. <laughs> okay, I have 25 minutes left. Uh, I don't want to over... I wanted to kind of overview Lent, but I have 25 minutes left. Does everybody have this piece of paper? It's Matt, right? Jason. Jason. Why do I say Matt? Is there a Matt in here? I know you're Matt, but I'm thinking of another Matt. So you're Jason instead of Matt. I don't know why in my head I had Matt. So... I want to start talking about Lent because, well, the church is starting to talk about it. Uh, I encourage you to go through, if you have the means and the desire, because I've already, there's already a lot involved in reading for this class in general. Uh, This is a great book to orient yourself to Lent. It has a a helpful title, Great Lent. Uh, This is by Father Alexander Schmoon. Uh, this goes through, it even goes through the pre-Sunday, so like uh, this Sunday for today. Uh, and then it goes over Lenten worship, etc. Uh, if you want to buy this, go for it. If you already have enough on your plate, you don't need to buy this, okay? This can be next year, Lenten reading. Uh, I encourage you to go back to Hopko, where we went to the church year, and he goes through the Lenten, uh, at least the Sundays, Um so I, I want to, I don't want to open it up because then we'll go all over the place. Uh, Lent is a time, I've talked about it at least twice in homilies recently, as a tithe of the year. This is where uh, Father Alexander Schmemann describes it as a bright sadness. Uh, I don't know if you heard the choir over the din of uh, all the coffee hour. Uh, Lent begins uh, with forgiveness vespers on uh, the, what we call it, Forgiveness Sunday, Cheese Fair Sunday, there's all sorts of names, the expulsion of Adam from paradise. Uh, That is something that we do after coffee hour on Sunday, and that begins Lent. The first week of Lent is called Clean Week. Uh, It is where, uh, in most places they do, like uh, in monasteries, they do like a strict fast, like nobody eats for three days. Um, I'm not encouraging you to do that per se, but Part of the basic reality of Lent is uh, increase in fasting, increase in praying, uh, almsgiving, and attendance of services. Uh, There is specific services uh, that are pointed throughout Lent. Because Lent is a penitential season that was originally for catechumens in preparation of being received into the church, because Pascha was the big feast where people were brought into the church historically, uh, Lent is uh, a time of uh, repentance, so we don't actually have liturgy on weekdays throughout Lent. There's only one exception to that, which is uh, when the Feast of the Annunciation happens. Uh, we have pre-sanctified liturgies that are appointed for Wednesdays and Fridays, if we were to do them on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, we, all, we always do them on Wednesdays, e- Wednesday evenings here and on some Friday mornings, just depending on, on the schedule. Uh, the first week, I'm going to stick with the first week right now. Uh, the first week, uh, in the evening of the first week of Lent, uh, we have um, Great Compline with the service of the Canon of St. Andrew of Crete. This is, uh, if you want to understand how the Orthodox understand the Bible, uh, this is the services to come to because it is basically uh, us talking about how to interpret all the Old Testament uh, from ourselves as those who are striving for repentance. So um, I might talk about, at some point, use a Sunday when the classes to kind of talk about this. I'll, I'll, I'll use it uh, to talk about scripture uh, and how we interpret scripture. But this happens uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We don't do it on Wednesday because we do pre-sanctified liturgy. Uh, as pre-sanctified liturgy, you can probably tell from the, the way that we call it, this means on the Sunday before, Uh, Because we only do liturgies on Saturdays and Sundays because of the resurrection. We don't do any liturgies during weekdays because of it's a time of fasting. So we even fast from uh, doing liturgy, the Paschal nature of uh, of the liturgy. Uh, We have uh, a Vesper service. 
so sorry. There was also a, a like a styrofoam grave. I think you put it out there. Um, so pre-sanctified liturgy is basically a Vesper service with a rite of communion uh, that has a reserved sacrament that was consecrated on a Sunday then is set aside and stays on the altar until we receive communion on Wednesday night. That's the easiest way to talk about it. It's like reserved sacrament that everybody is going to have uh, when they receive communion on Wednesday night. Uh, this is done by the church as a way of um, sustaining the uh, ascetic efforts of Lent, of fasting, of increase in prayers, etc. It's also a beautiful service. Uh, Father Alexander Shimon talks about, and I think pre-sanctified is one of those services that really grabs onto this, a bright sadness uh, that there is uh, the tones change. All, if you've noticed now, like all of our music is in like major. Um, what is what is the word I want to use? Scale. Mode scale. It's not. I don't think it's scale. Keys. There you go. And then minor key. Thank you. I'm not. I did not go to seminary to do that. Although I had three years of music classes, all I did was to, like try to match pitch. Okay. So, and I had to memorize a bunch of tunes. So. Um, we're almost always in major keys. Once we hit lit, everything goes minor. You, they were practicing some of those minors. So there's just a feeling of a kind of heaviness because there's like the canon of St. Andrew, there's a lot of prostrations. So what happens in lit? We do a lot of prostrations. We don't eat a lot of food, or at least if we do, it's like rice and beans. Uh, so we have longer services because the services get edited. And we have, in the midst of this, throughout the Lenten season, except on the weekends, we have the prayer of St. Ephraim the Syrian. So the bright sadness is, Father talks about, like, the services during Lent are long, repetitive, monotonous, and in a minor key. Where it seems like, like, what is going to happen? <laughs> is something going to happen? And he talks about this reality, as I was kind of talking about last Sunday, of like, the services themselves work on you if you submit yourself to them and just kind of struggle to pray and be present. If you are attending, the services work themselves into your bones. Like, at some point, I start desiring Lent just because I want, there is a place of, how do I say this? of exerting oneself or like just being available to God in a way, in a specific way, an intentional way beyond the norm, which we should always be in this state. There's just something about Lent that just offers this to you. And I'm, I'm kind of talking about something a little ineffable that I think those who have been through Lent know what I'm talking about. You kind of have to just experience it. Uh, being four weeks in of fasting and you're just, all you really want to eat is a cheeseburger and but you're standing in pre-sanctified liturgy and all you can think about is a cheeseburger when that's not what you're supposed to be thinking about at all i'm not talking about like a masochistic understanding of it uh but that there is those realities you get to a certain place in fasting and services where you just you go to a different place and you relate to time and things in just a different way you understand what i mean if, as you start engaging with this, so it just just you, you want to just let it work on you. You 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 come to the services and like you just breathe the services in, and you and you you you, you marinate in the uh, in, in the uh, in, in the prayers, and and it's just being drawn home, really. And and uh, like Father said, we we look forward to this time of the year. It's like I, when when it gets here, I need it. I I, I need to get called back. What really matters, and the only thing that really matters. We'll, we'll talk about Holy Week as we get closer to Holy Week. Uh, but the, fir the first and last week uh, are an intense, where there's basically all services every single day. Especially in Holy Week, there's services every single day, and they get more and more services as the week goes on. So let's go ahead and try in the 15 minutes to talk about. Oh, I did that silly kind of printing. Okay. I am going to start, basically I'm just going to read this out loud and start commenting on it, okay? One of the things that, uh, one of these? Uh, that accompanies us throughout uh, Lent is the prayer of St. Ephraim. Uh, this is something that is done at home and we do it in church. Uh, 
and it goes like this. Let's just go to the italics first. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk, but give rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgressions and not to judge my brother, for blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen. Sorry, memorization kicks in at some point. Uh, what we normally do with this is, well, he explains it. This prayer is read twice at the end of each Lenten service, Monday through Friday, not on Saturdays and Sundays, for as we, sh we shall see later, the services of these days do not follow the Lenten pattern. At the first reading, a prostration follows each petition. So, Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lest the power not I'll talk. Full prostration, right? Then, uh, every petition, so uh, there's a full prostration. Then we all bow 12 times at the end of this, and we say, oh God, cleanse me a sinner. And by bow, it's just this, okay? Oh God, cleanse me a sinner. Oh God, cleanse me a sinner. Then the entire prayer is repeated all the way, and then another prostration. Why does this short and simple prayer occupy such an important position in the entire Lenten worship? Because it enumerates in a unique way all the negative and positive elements of repentance and constitutes, so to speak, a checklist for our individual Lenten effort. This effort is aimed first at our liberation from some fundamental spiritual diseases which shape our life and make it virtually impossible for us even to start turning ourselves to God. The basic disease is sloth. It is that strange laziness and passivity of our entire being which always pushes us down rather than up, which constantly convinces us that no change is possible and therefore desirable. It is in fact a deeply rooted cynicism which to every spiritual challenge responds, what for? and makes our life one tremendous spiritual waste. It is the root of all sin because it poisons the spiritual energy at its very source. I don't know about you guys, but 2024 just kind of sounds like sloth. Uh, this is just on, oh, maybe ennui, despondency, despair, that's just kind of like, meh. Everybody know what I'm talking about? All right, this is kind of like what we swim in, right? Uh, I think, Father Alexander is right that like there is something here at the root, especially for us as moderns, that is like po it poisons the well. What for? Why does it matter? It's this kind of we we are cooked and baked in nihilism, right? So slothfulness. Why there's not there's no point. And I also think this can also come from certain Christian teachings that is basically like Jesus loves you, He's died for you. That's it. And then there's nothing required of you whatsoever, right? That that's the end of the story. Well, that's just as a license for to do whatever you want, right? That's not how scripture talks. That's not actually that's definitely not the tradition of the church. So we ask God to take from us the spirit of sloth. The result of sloth is faint heartedness. It is the state of despondency which all spiritual fathers consider the dangerous the greatest danger of the soul. Despondency is the impossibility for man to see anything good or positive. It is the reduction of everything to negativism and pessimism. It is truly a demonic power in us because the devil is fundamentally a liar. He lies to man about God and about the world. He fills his life with darkness and negation. Despondency is the suicide of the soul because when man is possessed by it, he is absolutely unable to see the light and to desire it. Lust of power. Strange as it may seem, it is precisely sloth and despondency that fill our life with lust of power. It's like Ephraim foretold Nietzsche or something here, if you know what I'm talking about, right? The will to power. By vitiating the entire attitude toward life and making it meaningless and empty, they force us to seek compensation in a radically wrong attitude Toward other persons. If my life is not oriented toward God, not aimed at eternal values, it will inevitably become selfish and self-centered, and this means that all other beings will become means of my own self-satisfaction. If God is not the Lord and Master of my life, then I become my own Lord and Master, the absolute center of my own world, and I begin to evaluate everything in terms of my needs, my ideas, my desires, and my judgments. The lust of power is thus a fundamental depravity in my relationship to other beings, a search for their subordination to me. It is not necessarily expressed in the actual urge to command and to dominate others, 
It may result as well in indifference or contempt or lack of interest, consideration, and respect. You know, we think as we're reading this, like, oh, this sounds like Hitler. And I'm like, this kind of sounds like the dude from The Big Lebowski. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh, he's just cool. He's just kind of laid back. No, he has nothing. Like, it's like the, we're nihilist Lebowski. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, right? Like, he's the nihilist. He doesn't believe in anything. Whatever, right? It's just like your opinion, man. So, like, so there, and it's, what's weird is like, oh, he doesn't really want to have power over anything. But he does. There is, like, there's a sense when you become indifferent and contemptible of others and, like, Especially if you like just poke a little bit, folks who are like this, you can see immediately the desire to like. Th- there's a removal of self, right, in that, so that you can control your atmosphere or numb yourself, right. It is indeed sloth and despondency directed this time at others. It completes spiritual suicide with spiritual murder. Finally, idle talk. Of all created beings, man alone has been endowed with the gift of speech. All fathers, sorry, this is a weird print-off, see it in the very seal of the divine image in man because God himself is revealed as word. But being the supreme gift, it is by the same token the supreme danger. Being the very expression of man, the means of his self-fulfillment, it is for this very reason the means of his fall and self-destruction of betrayal and sin. The word saves and the word kills. The word inspires and the word poisons. The word is the means of truth, and it is the means of demonic lie. Having an ultimate positive power, it has therefore a tremendous negative power. It truly creates positively or negatively. When deviated from its divine origin and purpose, the word becomes idle. The word enforces sloth, despondency, lust of power, and transforms life into hell. It becomes the very power of sin. I don't know if there's an age that has existed that has more idle talk than ours and we like to publish it and broadcast it to the entire world. Uh, every thought, everything that has to be published uh, and this kind of hall of mirrors of Instagram or whatever, like social media things that we can get ourselves into and how much things that we say. Uh, Christ talks about that we are judged by every word that comes from our mouth. Uh, and that is a hefty when you start actually thinking about that and all the stuff that you just kind of like that is judgment condemnation slander gossip all the things Uh, it is a very sobering thing that's why James calls the tongue like a world of fire that it just it just causes chaos these four are thus the negative objects of repentance they're the obstacles to be removed but God alone can remove them Hence the first part of the Lenten prayer, this cry from the bottom of human helplessness. Then the prayer moves to the positive aims of repentance, which are also for chastity. If one does not reduce this term, as is so often and erroneously done, only to its sexual connotations, it is understood as the positive counterpart of sloth, right? Chastity is more than just not having sex, okay? The exact and full translation of the Greek Sophrosini and the Russian, I do not know Russian. So, Selmodri, something like that, ought to be whole-mindedness. Sloth is, first of all, dissipation, the brokenness of our vision and energy, the inability to see the whole. It is opposite then, its opposite then is precisely wholeness. If we usually mean by chastity the virtue opposed to sexual depravity, it becomes the broken character of our existence is nowhere better manifested than in sexual lust, the alienation of the body from the life and control of the spirit. Christ restores wholeness in us, and he does so by restoring in us the true scales of values by leading us back to God. So chastity, or sophrosini, uh, it's like wisdom of wholeness that you have... Uh, the inner hierarchy of goods in the right order, that you desire the right things in the right way, and that you don't create idols out of created things, right? So, of course, with chastity, we immediately kind of go to lust, but it's more than just lust, right? The chastity is a kind of, that you're, there's a wholeness. I think we kind of almost know this on an intuitive level. Of, uh, chastity is this kind of feeling that everything is in its right place. Our, our, our soul is rightly ordered. 
The first and wonderful fruit of this wholeness or chastity is humility. We already spoke of it earlier in the book. It is above everything else the victory of truth in us, the elimination of all lies in which we usually live. This is the publican, right, today. Humility alone is capable of truth, of seeing and accepting things as they are, and therefore of seeing God's majesty and goodness and love in everything. This is why we are told that God's, God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. Chastity and humility are naturally followed by patience. The natural or fallen man is impatient. For being blind to himself, he is quick to judge and to condemn others. Having but a broken, incomplete, and distorted knowledge of everything, he measures all things by his taste and his ideas, being indifferent to everyone except himself. He wants life to be successful right here and now. Patience, however, is truly a divine virtue. God is patient not because he is indulgent, but because he sees the depth of all that exists, because the inner reality of things, which in our blindness we do not see, is open to him. The closer we come to God, the more patient we grow, and the more we reflect that infinite respect for all beings, which is the proper quality of God. Finally, the crown and virtue of all virtues, of all growth and effort, is love. That love which, as we have already said, can be given by God alone, the gift which is the goal of all spiritual preparation and practice. All this is summarized and brought together in the concluding petition of the Lenten prayer, in which we ask to see our own errors and not to judge my brother. But ultimately there is but one danger, and that is pride. Pride is the source of evil, and all evil is pride. Yet it is not enough for me to see my own errors, for even this apparent virtue can be turned into pride. Think about it. I'm going to read that line one more time. Yet it is not enough for me to see my own errors, for even this apparent virtue of being able to see my errors can become pride. Spiritual writings are full of warning against the subtle forms of pseudo-piety, which in reality, under the cover of humility and self-accusation, can lead to a truly demonic pride. But when we see our own errors and do not judge our brothers, when in other terms chastity, humility, patience, and love are but one in us, then and only then the ultimate enemy pride will be destroyed in us. After each petition of the prayer, we make a prostration. Prostrations are not limited to the prayer of St. Ephraim, but constitute one of the distinctive characteristics of the entire Lenten worship. Here, however, their meaning is disclosed best of all. It is the long and difficult effort of spiritual recovery. The church does not separate the soul from the body. The whole man has fallen away from God. The whole man is to be restored. The whole man is to return. That's why we do prostrations. Like we need, a lot of us need to get back into our body because we live in fantasy and we live disconnected. We live in a completely different world, right? The catastrophe of sin lies precisely in the victory of the flesh, the animal, the irrational, the lust in us over the spiritual and the divine. But the body is glorious. The body is holy, so holy that God himself became flesh. Salvation and repentance then are not contempt for the body or neglect of it, but restoration of the body to its real function as the expression life of spirit, as the temple of the priceless human soul. Christian asceticism is a fight not against, but for the body. For this reason, the whole man, soul and body, repents. The body participates in the prayer of the soul just as the soul prays through and in the body. Prostrations, the psychosomatic sign of repentance and humility, of adoration and obedience are thus the Lenten rite par excellence. So the prayer of St. Ephraim is going to be uh, a great companion uh, throughout the Lenten season. Uh, if you want a copy of that as kind of a reminder of what's going on in the prayer, uh, just let me know. Uh, or all of that was just basically lifted from this book by Father Alexander Schmemann on Great Lent. Uh, where he goes through and talks about all the different aspects of Lenten worship, uh, from pre-sanctified liturgy to the way the Bible is used throughout Lent, uh, to Saturdays in Lent, etc. Does anyone have any questions before we draw things to a close here? Yes. So, regarding pride, um, you know, like when you accomplish something, you feel proud. Is like that sinful, or is it all pride, or is it so I think having satisfaction and a job well done is not pride. Pride is when you want to parade everything in front of everybody, or when you can't actually see things as what they are. So it is not meaning that you t that God wants to rob you of all basic like goods. It's just 
being able to give glory to God and thanks to God and not to see yourself as kind of an outside of God. This is also why it's slippery and dangerous and subtle. Because we use colloquially, like, I'm proud of my accomplishments. I don't hear that as somebody saying, I'm prideful. People can say that, and they are being prideful. <laughs> yes? Uh, in regards to idle talk, uh, I find in myself that I often default to just not saying anything at all. Is there like a, any advice you can give for that, that complex? There's nothing wrong with not talking. <laughs> the Desert Fathers are very clear about things like, if you've got nothing to say, we have the Desert Fathers who talk about, like, that dog over there is better than me because he's never judged anyone. Right? There, there's stories in the Desert Fathers about them, like, basically, a monk just doesn't talk. Because he realizes if he talks, his the thing that he's tempted to do is just, like, on and on and on and, you know, open up a can of worms, right? So... We live in an age where silence is treated very strangely. We need to find more silence, and it's okay for us to not talk. That might feel weird. I make others feel weird, but... Now, don't be silent just to be weird, though. And I, know, <laughs> I know that you're not saying that, Emerson, but like, just when people ask you a question, you just kind of look at them and you don't respond. <laughs> You might have something else going on inside. <laughs> this is a much longer discussion, but you can also use it as a, as a, as a means for internal prayer, to internalize a, a prayer in your heart. As, as, um, so so you're, not, you're not being totally silent, but you're praying in your heart also. So just a, a thought. Yeah, yeah, no. Let's go ahead and end so that we're done at the time we all agreed on. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes is in thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people alike, to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.